Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't yet joined our wonderful Flyworld Nation community, go to flyworldnation.com and join in the podcast conversations. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. idea doesn't matter. You don't have to be the greatest expert in the world on your particular topic or subject. All you have to do is share your personal views and your personal perspectives on that topic with your audience, as long as it is natural, honest, organic, delivered in kindness, with thought toward others, your audience will follow you there every step of the way. You don't have to be the first to bring it up. You don't even have to be the best at it. You simply have to be the most you, but there's a risk in that, right? Because it means you have to share a little bit of yourself along the path. It's riskier, but it's also where the gold lies. It's what really does connect them to you. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. I'm really excited to have today as my guest on the InnovaBuzz podcast, Steve Malta, a veteran corporate storyteller, speaker, coach, team trainer, and market messaging strategist for some of the world's leading brands. He's crafted and delivered more than 20,000 on-stage and on-camera presentations to over 2.5 million audience members, connecting Fortune brands to their customers, partners, and media analysts. As a passionist evangelist for better corporate storytelling, Steve has trained and coached more than 2,500 executives, developers, engineers, managers, innovators and disruptors to stronger executive presence and winning communication through value, passion and connection. Steve's new book is called Nothing Gets Sold Until the Story Gets Told. Corporate Storytelling for Career Success and value-driven marketing. Are you looking to get more out of your business? Our sponsor, Flywheel Nation, has you covered. This community is tailored for high achievers who are ready to transcend the ordinary. As a member, you'll unlock premium resources and form alliances that can redefine your success. You'll be immersing yourself in a community where groundbreaking insights are shared powering a journey of transformation. If you're ready to skyrocket your growth, then join Flywheel Nation today by heading to innovabiz.co forward slash flywheel. In our conversation today, Steve and I delve into the power of corporate storytelling, highlighting its deep historical roots and its ability to build trust and create meaningful connections with audiences. We discussed corporate storytelling as a powerful tool for building trust, loyalty, and human connection with customers and employees. 
We talked about overcoming the fear of public speaking as it comes down to providing value to the audience and realising that they actually want the speaker to succeed. And we talked about sharing personal stories within a corporate environment and how that can create leadership, foster unique problem-solving approaches and build stronger connections with colleagues and customers. From overcoming the fear of public speaking to the importance of personal storytelling, Steve offers valuable insights and practical tips for anyone looking to make an impact in the world of business and communication. Without further ado, then let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Steve Malta. Hi, I'm your host Jürgen Strauss from Innovabiz and I'm really excited today to welcome to the Innovabuzz podcast all the way from Chicago in the USA, Steve Malta, who's a corporate storyteller and also author of a new book, Nothing Gets Sold Until a Story Gets Told. Fascinating title. So welcome to the Innovabuzz podcast, Steve. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. So kind of you again. Thank you for the kind welcome, for the kind words. Hello to all of your subscribers and folks who listen in. And I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk with you. I've already learned a lot from you and I know I'm going to learn a lot more today. Excellent. Well, I'm hoping that I learned some more from you also about the whole idea of corporate storytelling. But I think you tell it from the point of view of um, encouraging people not to be afraid to share their knowledge and get on stage and and as my business coach kind of says get over yourself get over your own ego or your own limiting beliefs and um, because we do all have actually a an obligation to share what we know and share the experiences we've had in a way that can help others right Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I've never quite heard it put that way. Get over yourself. <laughs> it's a very good way to think about it. I always talk about folks who are very hesitant to tell their own story. And there are a couple of stories that I like to use. Uh, years ago, I was speaking on behalf of a corporation in Las Vegas. And as I was on my way back to the hotel, I heard an interview with a woman named Melissa Manchester. I am very much dating myself. I may be dating you as well by saying that, but she was a pop star in the 1970s primarily, had a string of great hits. And back then she took a songwriting class with Paul Simon, legendary Paul Simon. And she said the greatest lesson that she ever learned from Simon is he said, all of the stories have already been told. It's the way you tell your story that's the mark of authenticity. And what's so great about that particular story is he was saying, all right, as a songwriter, you can write the word love over and over and over again. You're not the first person to explore that word or that concept, but it's your approach to it that makes the word love come alive in a special and new way. That's the mark of authenticity. And for people who are hesitant to tell their own story, frequently it's because they feel, well, my story's not very interesting. Mm. Or this story has been told a million times before. And what we want to say to those people is, no, 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 it hasn't been told by you. Yeah. I've never gotten the benefit, the value of hearing you tell your story. So give it to me and I'll be the one to decide whether or not it's a unique approach. And almost always our stories are unique simply by the fact that we're willing to stand up and tell them. And within a corporate environment, for entrepreneurs, for business leaders, it becomes even more important for us to share our stories because each one truly does take a unique approach to a specific set of challenges 
and problems. And it's just in sharing it that we create leadership for ourselves and for others. Mm. And one of the really interesting things is that, that stories kind of engage our emotion, right? And, we, and uh, allows us to connect better with the storyteller. I mean, that's how that's how information was passed down for hundreds of thousands of years before we learned how to chisel chisel um, writing on stone, right? And and record things for posterity. <laughs> it was stories that were handed down from generation to generation. And it was the more memorable a story was, the longer that particular story would survive through the years and through the generations. And of course, the message that was within that story, which was the important thing that, that um, people wanted to preserve and pass on. It's absolutely true. We, we have numerous scientific studies that show that across all continents where humans live, despite progress in forms of communication, whether we go to the Gutenberg press or up through modern social media and even into chat GPT, as we're talking about right now with AI and ML so much across our society, it's been shown that still the number one form of communication is through one human being simply telling their story or talking to another human being. It's in our DNA, right? It, it, we are evolutionary creatures. And that sitting around the campfire, as you just talked about a moment ago, that has never changed. We still learn the most and experience the most by sitting down with our friends, our colleagues, our family members, and sharing what we know. It's what we rely on. It's still what's the most successful. And it's the reason why I've heard over and over again in the work that I do, which is so much in the corporate sector and in the events sector, I have been hearing the death knell of the public event for 20 <laughs> plus years at this point. Oh, nobody's going to go to events anymore. It happened after 9-11. It happened following the market crash of 2008. It certainly happened during the pandemic. Well, that's it. Events are done. And I kept saying, no, you don't take hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. And because we're facing a global pandemic and a disease for two years, you're not going to change the fact that we like to be in the room together. We love to talk with one another and share our stories back and forth. It's how business gets done. It's how we advance as a culture. It's how we share great ideas and learn from one another. And I'm sorry, anybody who believes that that's going away and that we're just going to, from now on, type everything to each other, I'm sorry. I disagree. <laughs> yeah. We love to be in the room. We love to share our stories with each other. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And I think the pandemic certainly did one thing, um, the, the isolation that everybody felt through the uh, travel restrictions and the large gathering restrictions that, that were imposed on us due to the pandemic. Um, before that, people were reluctant to adopt these online tools like we're using now to have a live conversation online across geographies, across time zones. Um, and I know with some of my clients that were maybe an hour or two hours drive away, I'd say, well, let's meet every second time and let's get on a, a an online call, a conference call every other occasion. That saves me a fair bit of time and, and really um, we can deal with everything we need to deal with on that call. Well, there was a, a reluctance to do that and there was a reluctance, probably the fear of the unknown. How do these things work and how's it going to work? One thing the pandemic, of course, did, it forced us to force everybody to say, well, that's going to be better than nothing. So we better figure out how it works. And now, 
now there's that that transition of let's um, we can meet in person every alternative time and use this as as part of our toolbox is kind of that transition has happened hasn't it but it but really what, has. yeah but what it did do coming back to your point was people were looking for what how else can we connect with others how else can we get in this room even if it's only a virtual room to have these conversations to tell each other stories to connect with other humans um, and once that uh, physical meeting opportunity was taken away we uh, what did they say necessity is the mother of invention right we were already on this transactional destination we were on this journey this transition to digitization mm -hmm. and we've been in it for a number of years i mean a lot of corporations will say we've actually been in a digitization track for 15 years or more at this point but all of a sudden everybody is forced to stay at home on March 11 of 2020, we were still in the room with one another. And by March 12, sorry, you can't do that any longer. And so I think this bridge technology up level that we were doing, so we already had a lot of these tools in place. We simply forced ourselves to see, well, can we in fact digitize or transition or create the technology faster? And what we learned is, yeah, I think in a lot of ways within society, I hesitate to put a positive spin on a global pandemic. But because humans are by nature optimists, or at least we try to be optimists, I do try to look for the silver lining. And I think we have two great silver linings that came out of the pandemic when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to business engagement and interaction, and when it comes to our global society. And I think the first is what you just mentioned, Jürgen. It's the idea that we had to build it, so we built it. And now the technology is really quite strong and it gives us a fantastic alternative for communication, like what you and I are getting the ch chance to do right now. This would have been a very different scenario yeah. five or six years ago. The other thing that it did is it showed us that it doesn't have to take 10 to 20 years to create vaccine or to create medication or to create support mechanisms to deal with these types of crises when they pop up. We humans are pretty uh, inventive creatures. A lot of the entrepreneurial people who listen in on your show are some of those inventive creatures. And what it means is when we're forced to create something, we prove to ourselves, you know what, we can get it done quickly. I've always said, I'm a California boy. Your son is a California boy as well right now. But um, when we talk about water problems in California, right? So for a lot of your audience that lives in Australia, they may not necessarily know that Southern California needs to get its water from 700 miles away. It's an extraordinary distance because it's semi-arid desert in San Diego, in Los Angeles. So we pull our water from the Colorado River, 700 miles distance. And I've always said, you want to solve the desalination problem right away in the world? Wait till something, the scope of Southern California no longer has any water. We will solve desalination like that. It's going to happen quickly. But until humans are backed into a corner, until necessity becomes the mother of invention, we don't know what we're capable of. Yes, we just keep kicking the can down the road, right? Yes, we do, until we have no other mm. options. I don't know how much of this is about good corporate storytelling. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, there, there, was a, there was something you said in that where I thought, ah, there's, there's the link to corporate storytelling. And, and I, I was going to ask something along the lines of, so... How does this all relate to corporate storytelling and how did you, in fact, get into corporate storytelling? So let me ask that. 
All right, perfect. So I'll take the second part first, and then we'll go back to the first part. Uh, so I spent the first 30 years of my life as an actor full-time. So I was on stage. I was telling stories for a living. I was taking on a role or taking on a script or a certain quantity of content. And that's what I did up until I was 30, which found me right in the middle of the dot-com era. And in around 1996, this accidental opportunity presented itself, which was what was called back in the 1990s during dot-com boom, corporate theater. The idea of now, instead of being on a stage and presenting a play or a musical or dancing or whatever it happened to be, how about standing up and speaking on behalf of a large corporation? And believe it or not, up until the mid-90s, it was still a relatively rare concept. It had started back in the late 1960s into the early 1970s, but it didn't really start to boom until the 90s. And I happened to be accidentally in the right place at the right time. And two years later, I woke up, I looked at my wife and I said, guess what? I'm not an actor anymore. <laughs> and she said, well, how do you feel about that? I said, really good, unfortunately, which tells me I never would have been a successful yeah. actor to begin with long term because I wasn't hungry enough to stay in it. But once I stumbled into the corporate theater world, it clicked for me. There was something about the idea of trying to create benefit for others, trying to figure out what their challenges, what their needs were, and helping them to address that and create their own success. And that's really what I continue to do to this day, is help people tell better stories in order to achieve the corporate, the business success that they are looking for, which also then parlays to personal success. Because a lot of the concepts of good storytelling benefit us just as much in our personal lives as they do in our professional lives. So in terms of the corporate storytelling and what we were talking about a few moments ago, frequently it's the way we create perspective within a specific need or crisis. So we were just talking about desalination efforts for bringing water to drier areas, or we were talking about the need to create better bridge technologies that allow us to conduct our business and share information with one another. Frequently, it's less about building it initially and more about telling somebody else a really good story that makes them want to go and build mm -hmm. it or that creates the partnership or the entrepreneurship or the forward thinking that allows us to build what can ultimately benefit society. And that's really what I love about what it is that I do. So how did I do tying together my history yeah. with what you and I were just talking about as well? Really good. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> so the... Um... Yeah, the idea of corporate storytelling, it's even today, I think, um, thinking back to my corporate career and using terms like corporate storytelling or corporate theatre was something that seemed so far out of the traditional or um, conservative world of corporates that I guess you probably faced a lot of resistance or barriers in the beginning until you established your own credibility. How did you overcome those? Did you sort of change the language some to get in, get the foot in the door and, and give yourself the ability to tell a story, <laughs> to sell, sell the concept? It's a great question. So, Jürgen, to be, to be honest, I am riding on the back of about 120 years of progression on this concept. So when we think about corporate storytelling and what it is, it started out with a, with a concept that was actually developed back in the late 1800s by a North American 
uh, manufacturer called John Deere. And John Deere is certainly very popular throughout the world. Farming equipment, yeah, yeah. primarily, Practice, they're one of the, the world leaders on farming equipment. Well, long after John Deere himself had passed away, the company came up with a concept that they called at the time content storytelling, which was we have spent all these years selling tractors to farmers. Our tractor is the best tractor. It's the most powerful tractor. It allows you to do this and that and the other thing. And what they realized is, well, all the other tractor manufacturers out there were telling the exact same story. They were pitching their audience in the same way and trying to stand apart by saying, well, ours is better than yours. No, ours is better than yours. And they realized we can do better. And a good way to do that within content storytelling is they put out a publication called The Furrow. This is in 1895. And what The Furrow did is it told stories of life on the land. And it started to get people to look at John Deere not as a company that just sold farming equipment, but a company that understood the day-to-day -day realities, the day-to-day -day lives of the farmers who used the equipment. What were they up against? What were their challenges? What were they trying to conquer? What looked like success for them? What painted a beautiful picture of success for the global farmer that would make them say, boy, John Deere understands me in a way nobody else does. Therefore, I'd like to buy their products. Mm -hmm. Now we flash forward 120 years and all of a sudden we're in the corporate storytelling concept. And what corporate storytelling is at its core is it's a way of combining the details of your topic, whatever your topic may be, with personal experiences that your audience can then relate to and find value in and become passionate about themselves. So as I was building up my own brand from the mid-90s up until today, over the last 25 years and change, it's the idea of how do I work with large corporations, especially Fortune brands, uh, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, large mid-sized multinational, and in a lot of cases, startup entrepreneurial brands as well, to say, okay, you've got a product that you want to sell or a solution or a service or a capability, and you want to stand out from your marketplace, create differentiation from your competition, you're not going to do it just by giving numbers, data, KPIs, metrics. If you just try to prove that ours is the best, I promise your competition, they have their own numbers and APIs and metrics and data that says they are the best. And your audience gets confused because now they don't know who's telling the truth and who's lying. And now they make their decisions, their business decisions, strictly based on gut instinct. Well, who do I like the best? Who seems more trustworthy? And that's not really scientific. But if that's how they're going to make their decisions, you want to be the one that they say, you yeah. are the one that's more trustworthy. You are the one that I believe more or that I think understands me better. That's good corporate storytelling. So when we combine a number with a story, we connect with our audience, we connect with our marketplace, and we make ourselves invaluable to them. We end up creating partnership with them instead of I'm selling and I want you to buy, which is the worst way that we can approach our business. Mm. Yep. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Does that all track? Yeah, it does all make sense. It does all track. And the the idea, I mean, to me, it's around this whole concept, which I promote all the time about making marketing more human. It's about building that human connection through the story. Uh, the idea, of course, is that it's all in service of that audience of that dream customer. So talk to us a little bit more about your approach, because I know you're very strong on that too, but your approach to how do you craft a story 
in a way that builds that emotional connection, builds that engagement, and at the same time is is serving that audience. And I would love to ask that exact same question back to you if we get an opportunity to do it. So I'll go first and then I'll ask you to, to, to um, uh, participate in that as well, because I know you're going to have some great approaches. Um, human to human engagement or human to human interaction will always, 100% of the time, conquer human to corporate or corporate to human engagement. So as human beings, we process information, data on three different levels and in a very specific hierarchy within those levels. So at any given day, at any given uh, uh, time in our lives, we are bombarded by about 10,000 bits of stimuli during our average 16 waking hours. And we have to do something with that stimuli because it can't all be even or we wouldn't be able to process. Those on the autism spectrum, that's what they're fighting against is they don't know how to, how to focus on certain areas and block other areas out, right? So we can look at our audience in the same way. As this stimuli arrives, we go through a process of what I like to call or what the, what the tech world likes to call binning. Right? We have four different bins in our brains. And as stimuli arrives, we make a snap second, a fraction of a second determination. Is that bit of stimuli high value, medium value, low value, or no value to us? And most of everything we hear immediately gets kicked into the low value or no value bins, and we might as well have never heard it to begin with. That's most advertising, most marketing that we hear, most uh, uh, of the billboards that we see as we traverse through life. And unfortunately, a lot of companies spend a lot of money on a lot of marketing that immediately goes into that low value and no value bin. So how do we get into the high value bin? Well, we have to understand human psychology of hearing information and how we make those binning decisions, how we process. And humans will always process in this order. Number one, we process on a human personal level first, meaning does what we're hearing match with the way we think and feel? Does it align with our moral code? with our personal views on the world and the way we believe that the world should live and operate. And if the answer is yes, then it cracks through and we say, yes, we agree with that. We like what we're hearing. It meets us where we live on a human personal level. Then it goes to level two, which is as a consumer, would I buy that? And would I buy that can be with money or it can be with time. Is this worth my time investment? Do I listen to that and hear it and say, oh yeah, that's worth me setting aside other priorities in my life to give time to that instead. So what I buy it as a consumer is the second level. The third level is as an employee. Does it make business sense to me? Is this something that I would like to make a part of my brand, whether I am owning my own brand and I'm the entrepreneur leading the charge, or I am an employee within that brand and I feel that it's worth bringing into my corporate sensibility. So, Human first, consumer second, employee third. And most marketing flips that upside down. We market to the employee first, to the consumer second, and we leave the human at the bottom of the stack. And it's why most marketing messages fail. Human to human conversation means I've got something to share with you, and I'm going to talk to you like a person first, not a wallet first, or not an employee of a corporation first. I want to find out who the person is. If I can create that connection, the rest flows naturally. So that's how I approach every message that I build. Am I talking to a business, to a mass, faceless, nameless group of people who are potential contracts for me? 
or am I trying to figure out who they are as human beings and connect with them on that level first? Mm. So now, as I promised, I want to ask the same question of you. What is your approach to that human to human marketing? Because I know it's important to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I couldn't have said it better. That's a really fascinating um, sort of breakdown of the approach. Our our approach is pretty much along those lines. And the first step, we actually start a step before that. We start about some self-reflection um, in terms of what are my objectives? What are my own values? Why am I doing this? Um, what's, what's this going to do in terms of adding value to my dream audience? So the, they're the, that's where we start first. So, okay, being really clear about what have I got? And then the next step is the, who's the dream customer? Who's the person I want to talk to there? And the approach we take to that is a little different to the traditional um, ideal client avatar exercises that are, that are out there. It focuses very much on understanding who is that one person? Can we give that person a name? Can we actually make it a, a almost real person? And we often do the exercise in the way of um, when we're working with somebody of saying, think of your be very best customer the person that you'd love to go to a desert island with if you had nothing else with you and uh, you could take one person to the desert island who is a customer of yours, who would that person be? So it's got to be somebody who you know would make that desert island experience quite pleasant. And uh, that we kind of get them thinking in that sense and then we say, okay, now let's let's really understand this person and let's build a dream customer profile based on that person. And then we work on, of course, well, what are their values? What are their motivations? What are their desires? Who else influences them? How do we interact with them? What do they value in us as people based on that first exercise? And also what do they, um, what are they looking for? What, what are their dreams and desires? What do they want to achieve? And how does that fit with our expertise and what we have to offer. Absolutely, I, I, I love I love everything that you just said there. I call that pre-game questions. Yeah. Uh, so when I'm working with a corporation, inevitably they try to put the cart before the horse. We have an event coming up, or we have a product release, or a launch, or we've got a large keynote in a grand public space, and they immediately start to go to content. They start to build slides. They start to go into their wealth of legal approved documentation. And I always want to say, hang on, you're not there yet. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know why you're on that stage. The event is not your why. You have to figure out what is your motivation? What kind of communication are you trying to create? What is the outcome that you're trying to deliver for your audience? You have to get to know who they are first in order to custom tailor your message for their benefit. Because whenever we get the opportunity to speak on behalf of our organization to others, any sort of public speaking, it's a gift. It's not an obligation, it's a gift. Somebody is, is gifting me with the opportunity to stand up in front of somebody else and share what I know for their benefit, for their payoff, and to help deliver new success to them. Mm. And how often do we get opportunities to do that in life, yeah. right? 
And so I always, even even when I'm dealing with, again, a, a, a global multinational, an 80,000 member organization, I have to take the step back and say, you don't know what message you want to deliver yet because you don't know your audience. Your audience is not 80,000 people, not this one time. It's not always a global audience. Sometimes it's a more localized audience. So let's talk about who those people are. Let's get to know them and understand them and then tailor the message for their benefit and their payoff. Because if they feel that, and if they feel that we, as not only speakers, but as organizations, respect them, acknowledge them, and are there to make them into the stars, they will then follow us anywhere. We can get them to become a part of our organization. We can get them to purchase a product or sign a contract if that is the ultimate goal. First things first. Yeah. Talk to the human pre-game questions. Everything you said is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I... I always like to say, well, yeah, who are we talking to? Before we do the message, who are we talking to? And then craft the message once we understand all those things. So one of the things I love about what you've just said, and also you emphasize this quite a bit in the book, is the idea that it's a gift to speak. Um, and ha having the opportunity to speak on behalf of your corporation or getting other um, things is is I think a gift, it's important to view it that way. Now, I always thought of it in that way, and maybe it's ego because I thought if somebody asked me to present somewhere, I, uh, they must think I'm good or they must like what I, what I know or what I have to say. What I work with my mentees always in public speaking is to take that and turn it around as well and take the philosophy that what you're giving to the audience is a gift and treat it as a gift so that there's the obligation of, you know, understand what they want and give them what they want, but also forget about nerves or I, um, I'm afraid of going up here on stage because you're giving a gift to that audience. So can you talk to us a little bit more about that philosophy, that sort of the two-way philosophy, both sides of that coin? I think you bring up such a good point there. For a lot of people, the person who is selected to deliver a talk on behalf of their organization is, in fact, the right person for that particular communication. The organization looks around and says, you, you worked on the project, you built that particular project, you know it, you care about it, you're passionate about it, go out and evangelize, spread the word. Sometimes the person who is selected is voluntold because they're the only person who has the time in their calendar to do the job or nobody else does. And they're the right person at the totem pole on the right level where it's like, sorry, nobody else can do it. Guess what? You're it. You're up. And the person is thinking, great, I've already got a job that takes me 60 hours yeah. a week to do. Now you want me to add this thing on top of it. Even for that person, though, as you just said, Jorgen, it's still the gift, regardless of how you got to that position. If you're the one who has been entrusted to carry that elixir back to your village, to create that value for yourself and for your brand, it's still a fantastic opportunity to either build up your own career or build up the career of others. But it's all perception. So then when it goes to the negative, to the fear of public speaking, the I don't want to do this, I'm not in the mood, I don't feel confident. There are a number of ways that we can help people get over their fear of public speaking. And I do talk about a lot of this in the book, as you mentioned. So if we go to the technical, 
Glossophobia, which is the Latin mashup that means fear of public speaking, glosso meaning tongue phobia, fear, tongue fear, fear of public speaking. This is where it comes from. It's still the most widespread fear on the planet. Roughly 73% of us experience some level of glossophobia. With some people, it's small. With others, it is overwhelming, and they simply cannot speak in public. But once you are asked to speak, addressing your fears and being confident tends to come down to one core word, and that is value. As long as you're providing value for other people within your content, that value can help you begin to get over your fear of public speaking. The more you know the pregame questions that we talked about a few minutes ago, right? Knowing that we are giving a gift to others, sharing our experience for their benefit means we are on stage or in the spotlight or on camera in this case to provide value for other people. Once we know that we are offering value and the others are experiencing and, 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 and getting that, the benefit of that value from us, that starts to make the fear of public speaking go away a little bit. Because fear of public speaking is really a learned phenomenon. Yeah. We don't start out with a fear of public speaking, right? Ask the average four-year-old <laughs> to get up and perform a play, and they can't wait. They want to sing. They want to dance. They want to do a puppet show. They, they, uh, they don't even need to prepare. Just look at me. Watch me perform. Um, as, as Pablo Picasso said, every child is an artist. But as people get older, getting them to continue to be artists, that's the challenging part. Because we learn something called FNE. This was developed by uh, uh, Frontiers in Human Neuroscience in a big project that they put out in 2014, a big study on glossophobia. And FNE stands for Fear of Negative Evaluation. Mm. And it's the idea that glossophobia, or fear of public speaking, stems from fear of judgment from or negative evaluation by others. And it's actually completely wrong. The speaker-audience relationship is the opposite of that. When we get up to speak, our audience wants us to succeed. They're in our camp. They're out there cheering us on. Great, give me value. And as long as you give value to me, I'm not judging you. I'm not negatively evaluating you. I'm just thrilled that it's you up there doing the talking instead of me. <laughs> I get to sit here and all the pressure's on you, right? So, FNE is a fascinating concept. We learn to fear negative evaluation because the first time we're a child and the teacher asks a question, we excitedly raise our hand and say, me, 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 pick me. And we give the wrong answer. And the teacher says, no, that's not correct. And it's our first lesson in, oh, maybe I shouldn't have raised my hand. And the older we get, the risks become greater and greater. All of a sudden we're in junior high school. And now if we answer incorrectly, the kids behind us laugh at us. And then we get into high school, and now I answer incorrectly, and the girl that I think is really cute, she won't like me back because I'm stupid. And now I'm in the university, and I get the answer wrong by speaking out, and now I don't get that internship, or I don't get the grade or the recognition from the professor. So by the time we enter the public workforce, we learn it is so much safer to simply fly under the radar and not take the risk of getting up in front of others and speaking. Learned glossophobia, learned fear of negative evaluation. But if we can start to tell ourselves a different story, no, nobody is evaluating you. Nobody is judging you. If you deliver value to them, they love you. And you're up there to love them back by delivering value back to them. And as long as we focus on the value first, the FNE, it may not ever go away, but we can start to tamp it down a little bit and we become better communicators simply because how can they dislike me if I'm here to gift them with value that makes them successful. They're not going to negatively evaluate me for that. They're going to be grateful to me. 
and I'm grateful to them for listening. It's a great shared communication, but it's all about perspective. Yeah. Perspective yeah. counts. And that's what brings down our fear of public speaking. Yeah, and it does. It all ties back into understanding who the audience is and what their needs are, doesn't it? And then you can determine, okay, how do I deliver value to them? Now, one of the things that you kind of didn't really touch on there in in that uh, FNE conversation was the imposter syndrome. So here I am. I'm ready. I I know my audience. I know what they're looking for. I've got the expertise. Um, I've got I've constructed this presentation that's going to deliver tremendous value to them. I I'm about to go on stage and I think ah, oh, so and so would be much better at delivering this. They're they're much better. And and I I really I'm not really an expert on this. I mean I know a lot about it, but I'm not really the expert. So how how do you or what do you say to people that are kind of getting to that stage? Uh, I think you've just asked the golden question for most people who are asked to speak in public, right? Why me? Yeah. Who the heck am I? Who do I think I am to stand in front of others and tell them what I think they ought to know? So it goes back a bit to the Melissa Manchester story that we talked about earlier, right? The idea that it's not an original idea. An original idea doesn't matter. You don't have to be the greatest expert in the world on your particular topic or subject. All you have to do is share your personal views and your personal perspectives on that topic or subject with your audience. And as long as it is natural, honest, organic, delivered in kindness, with thought toward others, your audience will follow you there every step of the way. You don't have to be the first to bring it up. You don't even have to be the best at it. You simply have to be the most you. But there's a risk in that, right? Because it means you have to share a little bit of yourself along the path. So if you're speaking on behalf of your organization, if you are the entrepreneur who built the company up from scratch, and that's your role, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. You're talking about yourself, the company you built, the product you built, why you believe in it, and you're trying to get others excited about it. Initially, investors. And then you get up through product launch, and now you have to convince the marketplace why they ought to listen to you. Well, that's easy. It's your baby. It's your product. Mm. But if you are a cog in the corporate wheel, if you are an employee within your organization, it gets a lot harder to invest yourself in that way. So when you get on stage, it's a lot easier to simply toe the party line, right? Go to legal approved documentation that's already printed on the website, the microsite, in the brochures, and you just share that statistical information. The same thing that your audience could just as easily go off and research and learn on their own that they don't need you for, it's what most speakers go to. Why? Because it's a lot safer than opening up and sharing from the heart about who you are and why you care. But that second part of it, that willingness to share of yourself, both positive and negative, to expose your heart a little bit and create that connection between speaker and audience. It's riskier, but it's also where the gold lies. It's what really does connect them to you. So I'll share one other story and I'll try to make it very quick here. An amazing uh, speaker, a man named Yuri Hassan. For those folks who are TED Talk uh, fanatics, Yuri Hassan gave what I think is one of the greatest TED Talks ever back in 2016. And the title 
of his TED talk was, um, uh, uh, this is your brain on communication. That was the title of it. But it was the idea of what he calls experience-based chemical synchronization or brain coupling is the simpler way to put it. But Yuri Hassan runs the Hassan Laboratory at Princeton. And Hassan and his doctoral students came up with a fantastic test back in the early 2010s. And it was the idea that we can get other people to experience something that we ourselves have experienced long before we ever meet each other, because humans share a lot of commonality. And the better we are at speakers of recognizing that I may not know my audience by name, we may have never met before, but we already have a lot of things in common. And the more of that I can tap into, that shared human experience, we can create that brain coupling that then allows us to experience things chemically and emotionally that supercharges our content. And we can't do it with data, and we can't do it with statistics, and we can't do it by simply touting the value of our product. We do that by speaking as one human to another for one another's benefit. And when we do that, and then the product seeps into that conversation, boom, now we have the value, passion, and connection all coming together for the benefit of our company and for the benefit of speaking as strong entrepreneurial leaders and as strong representatives of our organizations. Yeah, I love that. And and that connection, I mean, I, I love to do in my talks, I love to start off with the rhetorical question that I know will get people thinking, oh, yeah, I have, or none. Um, either way, usually it's designed that it'll get a positive response, but even if it's a negative response, it means they've actually thought about it and it, it's built that connection. And one of the ones I did recently, I was talking about, um, actually I was talking about my inner dialogue and my imposter syndrome, um, but I put it in the context of change. And I opened up with the rhetorical question, have you ever wondered why so many people are resistant to change? And the first time I delivered the talk, I could see heads nodding everywhere. The whole front row, they're all sitting there nodding. And I thought, well, there you go. First, first sentence I uttered, I got the engagement with the audience. And, and they're the kind of things that I think if you focus on that, and then of course, follow up with delivering the value. Um, but it, the other thing, those kind of things do, once you get that, that connection and you get that feedback straight away, it kind of elevates your confidence immediately, doesn't it? It's, oh, Jürgen, that is such an important point that you just brought up. I'm so glad that you told me that story. It's incredible. It creates instant authority, right? You don't have to be the scientific leader on why people fear change. You're not out there doing those scientific research studies at a university level. But simply by asking the question, you create thought leadership, which creates authority. Uh, Dave, Dave Stachowiak, and I don't know if you follow Dave Stachowiak, he does the leadership podcast and he does a fantastic job of talking about that. How do we establish credibility the moment we're up in front of an audience where they look at us and say, Ooh, I want to listen to this person. Yeah. What you just talked about there is exactly how you do it. You walk in the door and you get them thinking about a concept that makes them think, I've always thought about that. Do you know? Yeah. Now you've opened up a dialogue. You've opened up a conversation with your listener. And that's when I say the word audience, when I use the word audience, I always want to qualify that. An audience can be an arena filled with 10,000 people, or an audience can be one person sitting across the mm -hmm. table from you, your partner, your, uh, uh, on a personal level, it can be your, your, your boss. It can be your teammate. It can be anybody at all. 
even when we're talking entrepreneurship, sometimes you stand on stage and you have an audience of 400 people in front of you. And other times you're a medical equipment sales representative chasing a doctor down the hallway of a hospital and you've got <laughs> 90 seconds to make your case. The fundamentals are the same, creating that connectivity. And a great way to do it is if you can come up with a good opener that connects you to them, that shares a concept that you all have in common, like how many of you have ever considered, why do we fear change so much? Yeah. You create an instant connection with your audience. I think it's a fantastic example. Hmm. All right. Well, we could go on talking um, storytelling and how it applies to pitching and presenting and speaking for ages, but I'm just aware of the time now and think maybe we need to do some follow-up episodes later on. Uh, I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. It's a lightning question, same five questions that I ask of every guest. And uh, the idea is that you'll inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Love it. So what's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? To be more innovative, you need to think on behalf of the other person and not on behalf of yourself. Listen to your market, listen to the audience in front of you, and do everything you can with them top of mind instead of yourself top of mind. Do that and you will always innovate for yourself and for the people you're hoping to serve. Mm, I love it. Yeah. And it's so consistent with what we've been talking about in terms of flipping that um, pyramid or whatever it is shape that you described earlier in terms of corporate presentation strategy. Create the funnel, right? Yeah, yeah. You can create the pyramid or you can create the funnel. <laughs> the choice is up to you. But if the funnel guides directly to the individual, long as you serve others, you will always innovate on their behalf and they will follow you. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Now, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Oh, I'm going to start to sound redundant. <laughs> listened to my clients, listened to my customers and what they had to say. Instead of trying to live in my own ego and what I do so well and what makes me so wonderful, I tend to go the other way around. What, can I, what else can I do to create more value for you? My clients and my customers will tell me. And when they tell me if I'm smart enough to shut up and listen to them, I will end up creating more value for myself and for my own brand in response to what it is that they tell me. Listen, 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 listen. It always leads us to a better place. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. And one of the things you said there reminded me, I, was it Andrew Carnegie, the quote that said, uh, if you want to be, if you want to become rich, then uh, start by making a lot of other people rich. It's a, yeah, it's a great way to put it, right? Or, and, and then the Dale Carnegie quote that goes on the balance to that. You can make more friends in two months by becoming interested in other people than you can in two years by trying to get other people interested in you. Yeah. So two Carnegies for the price yeah, of one. Excellent. All right. Now, what's a favorite resource you use most often? My single favorite resource is, oh man, I, I love that I'm actually calling him out right now. But um, there's a man named Terry O'Reilly. And for anybody who is not a listener of Terry O'Reilly's program, he started out with a program called This I Know, and it is now a program that is called Under the Influence. And he is one of the world's leaders on the history and the power of advertising. And even though I'm not an advertiser by nature, every time I read or listen to Terry O'Reilly, I learn an enormous amount about how humans think and how we can communicate more successfully with others. And I have found that whenever I get stuck, and I don't know what to do, I go to listen to an episode or I read some of Terry O'Reilly and the answer blossoms up in front of me. As long as I'm open to what he has to say, Terry, 
wherever you are out there in the world, I hope you listen to Jorgen's podcast. But if you don't, I'm calling you out now. Excellent. Well, we'll we'll have to check that out. I I have um, listened or read the This I Know. Um, is that a podcast or a YouTube show? So this I know started out as a podcast, mm. and then he wrote a book, and then back in I think 2012, I believe he changed the This I Know podcast to the Under the Influence podcast. Oh, that long and ago. The idea of how we all hear marketing messaging, yeah, and yeah. Uh, man, he is a genius of epic proportions. Yeah, I'll have to go back and revisit that because I, I I know it as the This I Know podcast. So obviously, it's a while since I've listened. All right. Now, what's the best way to keep a client on track? Hmm. Uh, to get them to turn outward. So let's qualify this in two different directions. If it's a newer company and a smaller organization, they are much easier to keep on track because they are already thinking about their marketplace and trying to put their marketplace first. The hardest company to keep on track for me, client uh, to keep on track for me, is a company that is 30, 40 years old that has an enormous amount of history and that has moved a great distance from their origins and their founders. Mm. Typically, companies, especially the clients that I work with, they have forgotten why they started, mm. what space they were trying to fill within the marketplace or what they were trying to serve or what gap they were trying to become the leaders of. And they've become so separated from it that they've forgotten their own mission. So the best way that I help them stay on track is I help them return to their original mission, their original guiding light, their North Star that they were attempting to follow, remind them what it is, and help them remove the hard sell from what it is that they're trying to do and get back to the nature of human interaction and connection that they originally built up to solve. Mm, yeah, I love that. And and as you were describing that, I think uh, there's so many companies that are like that i mean there's some companies that make those changes by design and there's a strategy behind that but they're still they they haven't lost sight of the overall mission i guess if you like they've said well this was our history but now we're evolving and the circumstances and the environment has changed so we're changing in this fashion but there's the majority that kind of just lose their way somewhere don't they they do, or they forget their passion. This is another thing is they forget why they do what they do. And sometimes simply by helping a client remember, why do you care about this? Yeah. It can't just be money. It can't just be meeting quarterly profits. It can't be just satisfying your board of directors and making sure that your share price goes up. There's got to be a personal passion behind it. And if we can help our clients, our customers, our partners, everybody remain in touch with their passion, what drives them, what really motivates them from a personal human level, everybody is going to achieve success once they are in touch with that passion. Because when we share passion ourselves, we inspire passion in others. Mm. When we are excited about something, we deeply care about it, they get excited about it as well, and they want to be a part of it too. Yeah, I love it. Love it. All right, a final question of the buzz round. What's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Ooh, man, I've got 50 of them running through my mind and I get to pick one. The best way to differentiate yourself, I hate to do it, it sounds so marketing, tell a story rather than share a pitch. If you immediately go to proof points as to why what you have to offer is better than what anybody else has to offer, I believe you immediately put yourself at a disadvantage. If you want to differentiate yourself, 
tell a good story, an honest story from the heart that captures the imagination of someone else, that alone will create differentiation long before you ever talk about a product, service, solution, or anything that you sell or market. Hmm. Yes, that's such great advice. And we've, um, we've talked at great length today in our conversation about ways to approach that and what you need to do to get prepared for that. Um, so I love it. All right. Well, thanks for getting us through the buzz. Now, Steve, where can people find out more about you, get a hold of your book, maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you shared today? Oh, I so appreciate that opportunity. So I am extremely easy to track down. So again, the name of my company is Steve Moulter Corporate Storytelling, which means you can go to stevemoulter.com or you can go to corporatestorytelling.com. They will both lead you uh, roughly to the same place and the same information. But the book itself, if you want to track that down again, nothing gets sold until the story gets told. And the subtitle for that, by the way, is uh, Corporate Storytelling for Career Success and value-driven marketing. And I think that's very important for a lot of people to understand, well, what are you actually after? And those are two of the key targets. How do you look like a phenomenal asset to your organization that makes you incredibly valuable? And at the same time, how do you make sure that any marketing you do is, is specifically story-driven? So it creates value for other people. So if people are interested in that, you can track down the book on any of the retailer sites, whether it's Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, BookBub, uh, Goodreads, any of the places that you'd normally get your books. And then I have one more thing I'd love to mention, and that is for anybody who's listening in on your podcast, who is a part of it, I've got a, a very cool freebie that I offer that I try to encourage as many people as possible to get to. And it is an e-guide that I've created uh, called Five Paths to Passionate Storytelling. And anybody can go and download this for free. And regardless of where you are in your career, your socioeconomic status, your education level, what it says on your business card, start to put these five things to work today. You will instantly up-level your ability to do better corporate storytelling and become a better public speaker. So if you want that five paths guide, go to corporatestorytelling.com slash guide. And then you're going to put in the code sold told 23 so all one string sold gold 23 and you can download the five paths to passionate storytelling and get underway with that right now. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll have links to all of those things in the show notes. So thanks for that generous offer. And we'll uh, include that code as well in the show notes. So Steve, what action would you like our listener to take out of our conversation today? We've kind of had so many gold nuggets come out so far is there one action you'd like to, the listener to as soon as they finish listening to this go away and put into action absolutely first things first whatever you have coming up next your next opportunity to communicate or interact with anybody else whether that is a professional engagement or interaction or a personal engagement or interaction doesn't matter step number one begin to trust that your story has incredible value. That's where you and I started this conversation. I would love to end it with that as well. Stop judging yourself. Stop worrying that other people are judging you as well. Simply go out and share what you know for the benefit of others, whatever your next opportunity to do that is, whether it's tonight, tomorrow, a week from now, but when you get the opportunity to share your knowledge for someone else's success and benefit, seize it, grab it, start to trust yourself. And there are a lot of tools to get you there, what we've just talked about over the last chunk of time is one of them, but it comes from you first and foremost. So that's your call to action. Whenever your next chance is to engage with somebody else, grab it, 
own it, try to love it, and get out of your own way. Just tell your story. Get over yourself. Yeah, love it. <laughs> get over yourself, yeah. baby. All right. Um, wonderful call to action. Thanks so much, Steve. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for sharing your insights and for the stories. And I'm sure we've got plenty more conversations um, in us that we could record for future podcast episodes. So thanks for today. Uh, all the best for the future and let's stay in touch. Jürgen, thanks so much. It's been an absolute joy. It's been a privilege to share your platform with you to talk with all of your listeners and your viewers. And uh, again, I've learned a lot from you as well, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you. This has been a total delight. I look forward to the next opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that informative, delightful and insightful conversation with Steve and took something away from his episode, most importantly. Now, as you reflect on this episode, think about your next opportunity to communicate or interact with somebody else. As you think about that, start off with this step. Trust that your story, your unique story has incredible value. Stop judging yourself. Stop worrying that other people are judging you as well. Simply go there and share what you know for the benefit of others. Whatever your next opportunity is to do that, whether it's tonight, tomorrow, a week from now, don't judge yourself. Don't worry about what other people think of you because that's none of your business. Just go out there and deliver incredible value and believe in yourself that you have incredible value to share. When you get the opportunity to share your knowledge for someone else's success and benefit, seize it, grab it, trust yourself. Steve's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Steve Malter. That is S-T-E-V-E. M-U-L-T-E-R, all lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Steve Malter. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Steve, as well as links to his website, his social media presence, and the other resources we spoke about today in our conversation. Now, I'm so glad and grateful that you're still here with us and found this conversation captivating. Go ahead and spread the joy by sharing it with another person who might also find it valuable. Remember to secure your episode bookmark token as well at innovabiz.co forward slash bookmarks. For what you'd spend on a cup of coffee, you can secure a lasting memento of this episode. Purchasing the token ensures 50% of the profit goes back directly to Steve as the episode's guest, while the rest helps maintain our podcast and keeps the lights on, keeps it going. It is a meaningful way to express your appreciation to Steve and to show your support for his episode. Steve suggested that we have a conversation with Terry O'Reilly, podcaster and author of the books The Age of Persuasion, This I Know, and My Best Mistake, and also with Don Colliver, author of Wink, Transforming Public Speaking with Clown Presence on future InnovaBuzz podcast episodes. So Terry and Don, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Steve Malter. 
Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode. It will help us to make the podcast better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz and pick your preferred platform. Remember to visit innovabiz.co forward slash Flywheel and secure your membership to the exclusive Flywheel Nation community where you'll enjoy direct access to our incredible podcast guests, engaging meaningful conversations and participate in connection events designed to elevate your business journey. Don't miss out. Join Flywheel Nation today. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from Innova Biz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.